everyone, this is Wayne, and this is a Green Pill Podcast, and gosh, <laughs> the last few weeks have been completely absurd. I was serving as an attorney in a trial, the trial of my friend Matt Johnson, for exposing some of the most horrific and nightmarish cruelty you can possibly imagine at a company called Iowa Select Farms. But one day before the trial was going to begin, just one day, the judge dismissed the entire case because the prosecution had moved to drop all the charges. And that's a story you've got to tell, but I want to have Matt Johnson on the podcast to tell that story. And frankly, we still need time to debrief it and figure out exactly what happened and why. But I thought now would be a good time for us to go back to an older story, the story of another pig, another pig farm investigation. And that's a story of Lily the piglet. Lily was a piglet who was injured, was unable to properly walk at the largest pig farm in the entire nation, Circle Four Farms, a pig farm with 120,000 pigs in southern Utah. And for removing this piglet, this sick and injured piglet, from Circle Four Farms and exposing in virtual reality camera footage everything that was happening at that facility, not only did I face felony charges, but the FBI and state authorities in Utah went on a multi-state pig hunt to track her down. You might think I'm exaggerating or telling some sort of tall tale or trying to be funny, but I'm not. There was actually a significant expenditure of federal taxpayer resources, including a small armada of FBI agents that went across state lines from Utah to Colorado to try and track down a baby pig. And the man who is going to tell that story on this podcast today is a, is a guy by the name of Shalene Shaw, a good friend of mine, really just one of the good people in the animal rights movement, who is an entrepreneur, who's been in tech, who never thought he'd find himself in the situation he was in in August of 2017 when FBI agents came knocking on his door saying, we're here to find Lily the Piglet. But you got to hear it to believe it. So, so listen to this podcast, and um, without further ado, here's Shalene Shaw. Shalene, hey, how are you doing, my friend? I'm good. How are you? I've uh, wanted you to talk to you about some of these subjects for, frankly, the last four years, and they've been very sensitive subjects <laughs> because of some of what's unfolded in those four years, but... Where we're sitting right now is, is frankly, one of the most famous and maybe the most infamous incidents of the animal rights movement's history unfolded right here, where yeah. we're sitting outside. Um, an armada, I think it was four cars. Four cars. Of FBI agents came to this facility, which is a sanctuary. You know, nothing dangerous here, just a lot of people loving animals and uh, did some terrible things. And, and I wanted to hear firsthand about that account because partly because I feel a little responsible for it. So I feel guilty and I want to just apologize to you, but partly because I, I want everyone who's listening to this podcast to understand just how badly our government can go wrong. Hmm. And thank God we had some incredible journalists to tell this story, including Glenn Greenwald, who wrote a story about just how absurd it was for the federal government and the FBI to go chasing after two baby pigs, which is why they were here. We're going to hear this story in just a second. But I also want them to understand that we have the power to change that with exposure, with education, and with the power of, frankly, just the truth. Yeah. And, and that's what Glenn and you and all the folks who just spoke your truth did. And, and that's one of the reasons these piglets are safe and to this day. And I just got to hang out with them. So <laughs> I'm on cloud nine right now, folks. But also, the, the bigger picture is, it's also one of the reasons 
more and more people are becoming supportive of this movement, despite the fact that so many powerful people, industries, and sadly, sometimes even government officials have been trying to stop us from getting that truth out. So, but I'm getting way ahead of ourselves. Um, tell me a little about this place, first of all. Where, where are we right now, and, and why did you start this place, Jalene? So you're in Love and Arms Animal Sanctuary. We're in Erie, Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, just 20 miles east of Boulder and about 25 miles north of Denver. The reason why we exist is actually, frankly, very well represented in that story. Mm-hmm. It's because people need to connect with farm animals and understand just how incredible they are as individuals and that they deserve our compassion and that this world would be a far better place through nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so in that story, um, what we're, well, well, I'm sure we'll talk about, there was a point in time where I sat and I said, you know, the government's bad or the FBI agents overstepped. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but if you take a step back and you really look at them, you know, like if our practice, our meditation is compassion, right? Mm-hmm. So as animal activists, we are connected with animals in a certain way and we have compassion for them. We feel what they feel. Yeah. But we also have to practice that to each other as humans. And, and, and if we look at that lens of where those individuals came from, somehow they actually felt that what they did was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as, as humans, they must have. Otherwise, they wouldn't have. And, and the FBI agents I talked to then and thereafter, like they were very professional mm-hmm. and even remorseful for what they did. Yeah. Because the act of doing it here at the sanctuary in the environment that really, you know, help people connect with the animals and, and where humans are connected with the individuals that they did that to, it affected them. Yeah. You know, so what is it that they came, came from and, and, and what they left with, I think were two different things. Yeah. No, I love the way you put that, that at the end of the day, as just people who are trying to build a more nonviolent world, we have to understand everyone's perspective, the suffering animals, but even folks who are maybe engaging in behavior that otherwise might seem quite bad, yeah. even oppressive and wrong. And, and there's something about that empathy that I think has a potential to change the world. And I, I want to definitely dig more into that story about the remorse that some of these FBI agents expressed, because it's a pretty remarkable story in that they had a mission, they had a task they were supposed to do, and they actually right. stopped it. They stopped it partly because yeah. in your ability to connect with those FBI agents and the other volunteers on side of the sanctuary, they started rethinking, is this the right thing to do? Right. Am I on the right side of justice in this case? But I want to back up a little bit and just explain the context because everyone's probably wondering why the heck were FBI agents chasing around <laughs> looking for piglets at a sanctuary? I mean, this sounds comical and you're, you're you must be lying to me because I've heard a lot of people make fun of the FBI, but I don't think the FBI is that interested in animal rescues. But the context is this. In 2017, we released an investigation of Smithfield Foods. It was published in the New York Times, among other outlets. It was one of our first virtual reality investigations. And by virtual reality, I don't mean the investigation 
was fake or cinematic. I mean, we brought in 360-degree cameras, which is a new technology. It's really hot. Facebook, Google, everyone's into VR nowadays. And we showed not just what was happening in factory farms, but it allowed you to really immerse yourself in that environment. We've now showed this VR documentary to thousands of people across the country. Vice President Al Gore has seen this footage, and he was moved by it. Because one of the things that factory farms and animal agriculture PR agents always say is that when they, when they, they meaning animal rights activists, show you some bad footage, it's not representative. This isn't the real condition. If you, if you look around, you're going to see something a lot nicer. You're just looking at one vantage point of one animal. And so we thought, let's show people the entire environment. And let's, let's just have the camera running the entire time and show you what we're seeing. Let you feel what we're feeling. And to a certain extent, and the best part of the VR documentary we produce for sure is when we actually place down the camera at pig level inside the crate. So you get just a, a tiny sliver of the experience of an animal confined in a cage. And in the context of this investigation at Smithfield Foods, the largest pig farming corporation in the world, we saw a couple piglets that, that we named at the time, Lily and Lizzie, who were doing really badly. Um, Lily was about two pounds in a farrowing crate facility where all the other piglets were 15 pounds or so. So imagine a high school student that was 20 pounds. That's about how big Lily was compared to the other piglets in that facility. She had a very serious leg injury at the time that had swollen up to the size of a golf ball and was kind of dragging herself around because she couldn't walk and she couldn't put any weight on her back foot because it was causing her too much pain. And that was probably part of the reason she was slowly starving to death. And so we saw her and honestly, like when we decided to pick her up and take her out, and this is all documented in virtual reality in real time, I didn't think she was gonna survive. You can ask any of the other activists involved in that rescue. You can ask the veterinarians we talked to. We just assumed this was an act of mercy, that we could not bear to see this little piglet slowly starving to death. So we just took her out, brought her to the vet. And this is an animal because every smaller animal inside of a factory farm that's not commercially viable is garbage. They will throw these animals away. And I actually was just uh, reading a deposition of a factory farm worker in Iowa that we deposed a few weeks ago, who said under sworn testimony, yeah, these animals have no value. They're, it's a cost for us. This is actually increasing our cost that we have all these dead and dying animals in the facility. So in a way, we almost did them a little bit of a favor. I mean, not a huge favor, but we saved them you know, a little bit of time and money by removing an animal that otherwise would have been in a landfill. So this gets a massive amount of exposure because among other things we show that Smithfield Foods had not actually ended the use of gestation crates, which is why are part of the reason why Lily and Lizzie were in such atrocious condition because they're raised in these tiny crates where their mothers are in. It's almost like a metal claw that surrounds the animal, right? It's, it's very insidious looking. And Ian Duncan, one of the most prominent animal welfare scientists of our generation, has described it as the cruelest form of confinement humankind has ever devised. The cruelest form of confinement humankind has ever devised. Because these mother pigs are so confined, they cannot even turn around and, for example, look their babies eye to eye, face to face. They're trapped in this vice-like group because you're trying to raise as many animals in a small amount of space as possible. And we showed that Smithfield was continuing to use these crates, these gestation and farrowing crates, and, and that was against their own policies. So we report this in the media. You know, we, we've provided this information to the government saying this is a clear violation of Utah law, which it is, because while Utah law exempts factory farms for commonly approved animal welfare practices, Smithfield itself conceded this was no longer an approved animal welfare practice. In fact, their corporate policy was, we don't use gestation and crates. We don't torture animals in this way. And we showed they were. But instead of 
prosecuting the company or trying to investigate the facilities, they decided to investigate us. And this was actually the first knowledge I got of the investigation. Instead of coming to me and asking us any questions, instead of talking to the lawyers we were working with and filing reports to the government, they decided, unbeknownst to any of us, and very secretively, to go after what they thought was the most vulnerable point of the movement, which is the folks who are taking care of the animals. And, and that's just a backdrop for these FBI agents showing up. So sorry, that was a little bit of a windup, but when those FBI agents showed up on that day, can you just tell me what was your reaction? And just, just walk, walk us back into history in that moment, because I think you were not physically present when they first arrived, right? That's right. So tell me how you heard about it and how you responded. Yeah, so, so one of our team members called me. There were two, two animal caregivers here and a couple of volunteers here. And I get a call uh, from our team member that the FBI is here. And not only are they here, they want DNA samples from all of our pigs. Wow. Uh, because they're looking for what we knew at that moment was Lily and Lizzie. And so I immediately leave. I'm about 15, 20 minutes away. I'm driving probably 80, 90 miles per hour trying oh. to get here uh, as, qu as quick as I can. I mean, you must have, were you scared? What, what was your reaction? Like, what were you feeling when you hear this? I mean, it must have been a shock. It was, it was, it was definitely a shock, not something we were expecting. But it was also, it was, it was a moment of kind of that parental instinct of protecting mm. your babies. You know, like oh. this is... Um, you want to be here. You want to make sure that no harm comes to them or to your team or mm -hmm. to the organization. And so I'm, I'm rushing here. I, I think I may even have made a few phone calls along the way. I, I might have even reached out to you. Um, and, and as I'm arriving, I'm seeing not only do I know that there is FBI agents on property, but on both sides of the property, there's police that are poised and ready to chase anybody who's trying to escape wow. somehow. Um, so they're almost holding everyone hostage. Right. Yeah. So there's, I didn't you know, know that. Yeah. There was um, police cars stationed on both of our neighbors' driveways, like just ready to go after anybody who's, so it's, it's almost as if they, they came in expecting this criminal operation. Yeah. Um, and by the time I get here and I get into the parking lot, they were already done with mm -hmm. what they were doing and they were all leaving. I met them outside. They gave me a copy of the warrant mm -hmm. um, and a business card and they left. Yeah. And then I, I you know, go in and I find out um, what they had actually done. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just just one of those moments where you just, it was gut-wrenching. Yeah. yeah. Like you feel violated uh yeah. in, in in a just a horrible way and you feel helpless you feel powerless mm -hmm. to have not be able to protect the ones that you're responsible to care for yeah T tell us what actually ha they had done and yeah in, in the so, context and yeah and actually before you say that i i want to paint the picture for what this place is i mean many of you maybe not, don't even know what a sanctuary is like a sanctuary is essentially an animal shelter for farm animals i mean it's and the people who work here, I mean, typically women, you know, honestly, like women tend to be caretakers more than men. You know, we men have to step up and do a little better job with that. But it's a lot of just really good hearted volunteers, um, some staff, but all people who just care about animals. 
They're, they're taking abused, abandoned animals. They're trying to help them recover from trauma and all types of animals. We got dogs, cats, turkeys, cows, pigs, goats, all sorts of beautiful animals. And I saw even just walking around the sanctuary today, so many animals with the saddest stories, you know, donkeys that have been abused their entire lives who are just kind of getting back into their own bodies, into their own lives again, because they've been scared and defeated and trapped for so long. And so this is such a gentle and peaceful place. And, you know, whatever people think of my activism and, and the work we do at DXC, at this point, Shalene had no involvement and really no knowledge of anything specific about where these pigs had come from, because you got them from another sanctuary, not from us. Right. And, and, you know, you had no idea exactly what we had done. I mean, you knew about some investigations that had happened, but the world's a complicated place. And I think many people, including the sanctuary, provided these pigs to you because they were at, going through some financial difficulties at the time and possibly forced to close. I mean, you just did this out of the goodness of your heart because there was an animal in need. And, and that's what the philosophy of a place like this is, that, that when there's someone in need who everyone else has abandoned and left behind, who's sick, who's injured, you step up and try to help them. That's right. And, and that's what this place is about. It's a place of goodness and peace and kindness. And for these men, and I think they were armed, right? These are armed men. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like bulletproof vests. Yes. Is that how you describe them? That's right. And there were how many of them? They came in four... Four SUVs. Four SUVs. Yeah, just the black uh, SUVs. Black SUVs. Yeah, yeah. like kind of a scene of scene in a movie. Yeah. And, yeah. And just even the physical layout of this sanctuary, I, I wish you all could just see what I'm seeing right now. This is such a beautiful, peaceful place where you have these, these gentle fields and trees and beautiful ponds that have been made often by volunteers to, to give the ducks and the pigs and the other animals a place to play. We just saw a few baby goats who I think were abandoned, or I don't remember what their story no, was. They actually came from a goat dairy. A goat dairy. Yeah. So they were abandoned by goat dairy. They were not right. going to, they're males. So they were going to be killed. So they That's just right. gave them up. They're going to be killed. And they came here. They had some toys in their, in their little pen. And tomorrow they're going to get integrated into the flock. And so it's such a peaceful, joyful place. And it's such a beautiful place. And then you've got armed men streaming in here, threatening everyone at the sanctuary, holding them hostage. I didn't even hear about that. And then doing what you just referenced. And, and maybe you can describe you yeah. know, how you heard about it and what you saw, what they had done to this animal. Yeah, thank you for describing the sanctuary. And, you know, so one, one, of, the, one of the main things that we do here is rebuilding trust mm -hmm. and, you know, rebuilding a relationship with these animals who have been abused. And they have absolutely no reason to trust humans. But they do again, because when you provide them love, you provide them care, you, they, they create this, this new experience of how to relate with humans. And it takes time, a lot of time. And so the result of what these, these agents did is, is you know, like that, that was one of the more, the experience itself and what happened with Lizzie was incredibly painful. But you know, one of the sadder parts was that, that unworking and how she would have taken a very long time to come to a realization that this is a safe place, yeah. that I'm loved here. And in this moment, that all changed. Yeah. You know, that, that she 
would and have what felt, specifically happened? What what did the because yeah. the FBI agents have these warrants, right? And I they imagine the, the the folks here were first and foremost worried they were going to be just seized and taken away. Yes, and that yeah. thank God did not happen. But right. what specifically did the FBI agents do? So they came in with a warrant to test DNA on all of the pigs on the property. Mm-hmm. But they also had a description of the kind of pigs that they were looking for. So the staff and team members here pleaded with them, said, look, this is, these are the individuals you're looking for. You can't do what you want to do with all of them. Mm-hmm. And the understanding was that they were looking for DNA, mm-hmm. right? What they did not say was how they're going exactly. to extract the DNA. You know, when we were talking about as, us as humans, if we wanted to get a DNA test, what do you do, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you get you get a, uh, a a little swab and you swab your cheeks, and mm-hmm. there's plenty of DNA on that. So there's lots of ways that they could have gotten this DNA, but what they apparently the state veterinarian had prescribed that the right way to get the DNA from these pigs is to use a um, a metal snare to hold them and to use a knife and to cut an inch and a half off of the top of their ears off. Mm-hmm. And this is how they got the DNA. Mm-hmm. So, And with no painkillers? No painkillers. No, no kind of oral prescriptions. It's not like these pigs even got Tylenol. They just no. put them in a snare. And this is a snare from what I understand. It's it's made, made almost to induce pain in the animals so they're paralyzed. That's so right. So they don't move. Yeah. 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 It like grips their head, right? Yeah, on, on the top of their snout. On the top of their so, snout. And so it, it's, it's, it affects their breathing. It yeah. affects their, I mean, it, it's. They're paralyzed. You know, the, yeah. And, and to pigs, their snout is the most, most sensitive, sensitive. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like it's, it's an integral organ to them, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so they come in and, and, they wouldn't let our caregivers help in any way to calm or um, pacify or to, to participate. You know, they, they had brought a veterinarian with them from the state, but this is like an agricultural veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And, and the prescription was that you snare and they'll use a knife without any painkiller and, and cut off a part of um, their ear. Mm-hmm. They did this to Lizzie uh, first. And our team, I mean, they were just in shock. They were screaming, and there was tears. And this pain that the FBI agent saw um, as they were Lizzie doing this the to Lizzie. Because the piglet is just screaming. She's screaming, too, yes. But, and, and so were our caregivers. Mm-hmm. And this environment that, like, they, they saw this, and they decided not to get the DNA from Lily. Mm-hmm. And that once they got both of Lizzie's ears, that they were done. Mm -hmm. And then they left, or they were leaving. You know, Lizzie, after this moment, for months, she was in depression, um, wouldn't want to go, you know, out in the field, would just kind of hang around by herself, facing a wall, Mm -hmm. just on her own um, during this process. Lily would, you know, try to get her to come around and get up and play. Um, But it was kind of an experience that you would imagine a human would go through when they have been violated. Um, So it was just an incredibly painful 
um, emotional experience. And these are juvenile pigs. About how big are, were Lily and Lizzie at this point? Probably at this point, there were a couple hundred pounds, pounds you know, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And for those of you, I mean, that might sound big to you, but these are babies They're compared babies. to their final size. Like Lily and Lizzie today, are, I think one is, I believe, 600 plus pounds. The other is 700. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. These. And yeah. so one of the things that people don't realize is these farm animals are giants. They're gentle giants. I mean, they have the physical capacity to trample on you and crush you if they wanted to, but they're incredibly gentle souls, even when they've been violated, as Lizzie was. So tell me, when you, when you got here, and did the staff members tell you about this? Did you go and see what happened? Was there still blood? Oh, yes. There, so you saw yeah. the blood. Yeah, So absolutely. they didn't even bother to clean it up. They just no. left blood no. and, yeah. That's and how, right. what, what, what was Lizzie's response immediately after? Like, what, was she just... Cowering in a corner or yeah, yeah, just she wanted to be alone. Like she even even with our care staff, like yeah. it yeah. It it was just of of bewilderment, of pain, of distrust, of not mm -hmm. knowing is she safe? Yeah. You know, who does she know you know, trust or no longer trust? Yeah. Um I'm sure she felt alone. Yeah. For, for those of you who've never seen the inside of a factory farm or, or been inside of a factory farm, these are very fearful places. Fear is the emotion you experience most when you're walking around and seeing the animals. And this is true of all types of factory farms. Egg farms, you've got, whether they're cage free or batter cage facilities, you've got thousands of birds. All of them are clamoring all over each other. They're scared of being pecked or trampled to death. And in factory farms that raise pigs, you know, you have animals, whether it's in a finishing barn where each animal might receive you know, 20, 30 square feet of space for a 300 pound animal where constantly you're struggling for food, for water, to not be stepped on, not to be bit by other animals because you're so tightly confined. And for Lily and Lizzie and other animals that are removed from factory farms, when they get out, it's, it's a slow process, but you can see them trusting the world again. Um, and, and every day you, you see progress. They're a little more willing to explore. They're a little more curious, a little more trusting. They don't if you ever interact with a dog that's been beaten, you know, you know the experience of like an abused dog, the, the way they will cower. You can tell in an animal's body language when they've been defeated. And over time, they get better. Every day, they get stronger. They get a little more confident. But one breach of trust like this can send an animal, including human beings. You know, you hear about PTSD among military veterans where they've experienced so much trauma and they come back. And even if they've recovered and gone through therapy for years, maybe there's one experience where they get assaulted or robbed or they even get into a fight and it sends them spiraling back. And, and it sounds like Lizzie went through a similar experience. And I, I want you to just, as you're listening to this, imagine what it would be like for you. Imagine one of the most fearful experiences of your life, right? And imagine having that replicated and feeling like, oh, it's all happening again. And, and this time it might never go away. And I think this is probably what Lizzie was going through. This, this sense of betrayal and a loss of trust and a fear that, man, I thought I'd made it out, but maybe I haven't. Um, and it's, it's difficult to even tolerate and think about that happening and, and explain to yourself, why would that happen? So can you tell me, I mean, so you come in, you see the blood, you talk to your staff. What are, what are your staff telling you? And what are the, because you did talk to the FBI agents a little bit right after. And what, what are they, what are your staff and the agents telling you about well, what's happening and why? Yeah, no, the agents were on their way out. I mean, okay. they were literally about to get in their car. So all they talked to me about was, I mean, they gave me, a copy of the warrant mm -hmm. and a business card and that's, that's it. it like okay. like they were their business is done they're out of here they gave no instructions no reasoning no 
nothing. Just mm -hmm. this is, you know, it was it was all business. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. But the staff, I mean, they they were incredibly strong, but still defeated. They felt they were right here. They're right in front of them. The individuals that they cared for, they love. And they were able to do nothing to protect them from this harm. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult for them. Hmm. What did they say to you in, in the weeks after? And how did you try to recover from that? Did you meditations? Was it therapy? I mean, did, did anything? Yeah. You know, kind of thinking back, I've always thought that I could have done more hmm. for the team, for the staff. Yeah. And, you know, it was, but there was all this fear of what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, how do we protect Lily and Lizzie? What can we do? Mm -hmm. What are our options? Um, there was definitely possibilities of potential criminal action against myself, my sure. family. Um, and at that time, my work, my business, uh, you know, required state licensing, yeah. um, and and criminal action would jeopardize my my yeah, my my, my living, my mm -hmm. future of my family. Exactly. So you know, there was there was a moment of a lot of fear and trying to find answers yeah. um, for all of us, and the staff also had those same questions: like, are they in trouble? Like, mm -hmm. what's going on? Um, and what does it mean for the sanctuary and for the rest of the residents here? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a dark time. And I, I want to just point out that this is a deliberate strategy of the ag industry that they, they have, and there are even documents written about this, that one of the ways they achieve their goals is intimidating folks who are dissenting, who are yeah. doing something a little different or trying to challenge their bottom line. But they know that if people see what's happening to animals in factory farms, and if people have genuine relationships, you were talking about this bond between humans and animals. I think all of us have the capacity in us, all of us, including the FBI agents who came here, have the capacity to imagine what it's like to be that animal. And that probably happened to whoever the FBI agent was in charge because he heard those screams from Lizzie. Yeah. He, he saw the tears of the staff members, and there was just a flicker of empathy that said to him, I don't want to keep doing this. I, yeah. I don't think this is the right thing. The industry understands how threatening that is to them. And so their goal for, frankly, the last 20 years, ever since undercover investigations and farm sanctuaries and the animal rights movement have started challenging factory farming in this country, has been to intimidate, you know, deter and intimidate using the powers of the government. And I think that one of the most impressive things to me about this is not only that you continued on, because this continues to be an amazing, beautiful place with so much peace and love. And I can just sense this place is healed. And frankly, I can't not just sense it. I mean, I, I felt it. I, I laid down on Lizzie's belly today and I listened to her heartbeat and she's healed. Lizzie's, Lizzie and Lily are better. I mean, they, they're even from the last two years, I think I last visited them about two years ago. I, I see just physically how much better they are. They're much larger and, you know, they're much more active. Um, but there's also a healing of, the spirit, right? And a healing of, of the culture of the organization. And, and one of the things I want to point out is to me, part of that healing came from you deciding to do something, which was incredibly brave, which is, and 
Because the easier thing to do in a situation like this, when they're threatening you with criminal charges, they're costing your staff members, your volunteers are scared, your donors are probably freaked out, your family's future is potentially lost because you could lose your license, your business could shut down, your ability to fund the sanctuary, to feed your kids, could all be destroyed in an instant by the government. And the easier thing to do is just cower and stay silent because that's what they want you to do. And instead, you did something that I thought was incredibly brave, which is, I'm just gonna be open about this and talk to the media. And it led to an investigative report by Glenn Greenwald, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, that was seen by at least tens of millions of people. This is someone who broke the Edward Snowden story, if you've heard about Edward Snowden and the secret surveillance of American citizens by the NSA, Glenn broke that story. Someone who broke the story about Jair Bolsonaro's corruption in the Brazilian government, that Jair Bolsonaro was collaborating with certain judges at the highest level in Brazil to imprison his adversaries politically. You know, um, Lulu, the, his liberal counterpart, who was the former president of Brazil, was imprisoned partly due to corruption. And Glenn Greenwald was able to obtain documents proving there's corruption and collaboration that they basically didn't have good evidence against his opponent, but they put them in prison anyways. And Bolsonaro is probably going to be out of office in the next few weeks unless he attempts a coup, partly because of this investigation. And Glenn published this story, and Glenn has told me repeatedly, not only was this perhaps the most emotionally powerful story for him, as someone who wasn't even a vegetarian at the time we brought, I don't know if you knew this, but, yeah, because he's a big vegan advocate now. He's always right. talking about veganism now. Back then, he was an animal eater. I mean, he was a meat eater. Yeah. He had, he, he, I mean, he was someone who loved dogs, but he, was, he hadn't thought much about vegetarianism. Not only was it emotionally gripping for him, but he told me this is a story that I've published that has been seen more and read more by anyone than by the, any other story I've written for The Intercept, right? Um, the Bolsonaro story occurred after this, and the Snowden stuff was for another journal. But this is someone who is a very prominent Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And uh, when we published the story, because, and this story would not have happened 100% if not for the fact that, that Chalene spoke and was willing to say, you know, this is what happened. And again, Chalene didn't do anything wrong, and he wasn't, he wasn't condemning. I, I know what sort of person you are. You weren't, you weren't trying to condemn the FBI agents. You weren't even trying to condemn Smithfield. You, you were just stating facts, right? That there was a warrant to search for piglets that the FBI, for whatever reason, had crossed state lines from Utah to Colorado because the original investigation was in Utah, that there was an armada of four SUVs that came to visit us. And this is a story that's kind of too absurd to believe, we needed someone to attest to that. We needed someone to provide Glenn the search warrant, to, to talk to him just openly. And despite the fact that every personal interest you had <laughs> suggested you should go hide in a corner and pretend this didn't happen because this is a really dangerous situation, um, you decided to speak openly. And, and I want to ask you about that decision and like what made you decide, I want to talk to this journalist and I want to be open about this despite the fact that you knew so much was at stake. Like what, what, what were your... What were your thoughts at the time? You must have had some second thoughts. <laughs> I, I did in the beginning. And, and frankly, there were journalists that I did say no to. Okay. Right? Um, it's just because you, you, sometimes with journalists, you don't know the perspective that they're coming from sure. and, and, and the result that they will give. But when, when Glenn approached, and, and we actually had a preliminary talk before going on the record, mm -hmm. and I, I saw that he actually wants to tell the real story mm -hmm. and that this will create an impact that will be positive overall. And, and that's when I decided to go on the record with him. Mm -hmm. um, it was just the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, that the pain and the suffering that 
that Lizzie experienced um, of what happened, it, it just was the right thing to do um, to to share that story. What was your first experience of Glenn? Like, what, what do you remember about that? He's a really fascinating guy. He's, I've had him on the podcast too, but he's... Yeah. What, what was your reaction when you first talked to him and what did you talk about? I mean, I'm sure he was trying to reassure you and... Yeah, you know. it was just an incredible guy. I mean, yeah. just, just a really genuine, incredible individual who was very astute and and truly cared about reporting the right story yeah. and, 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 and not being biased about it, you know, based, like you said, like he himself was not even a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. uh, but he truly cared about saying, you know, giving the right perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just based on his previous work, I, I had the faith that he would do the right thing and, and, yeah. and share the story in the right, the right light. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that conversation with him was, was valuable in make, making that decision. Yeah. If you want to read this article, by the way, just search Glenn Greenwald FBI piglets because the headline's just hilarious. I mean, again, it's when you read the headline, it almost sounds like something from The Onion. This is a joke. But the headline is something about like the FBI's hunt for two piglets shows the federal cover up of factory farms. And most of us don't think the government is so, frankly, just frivolous. But in this case, it's not just frivolity. I mean, it's actually oppressive. It's a misuse of power because... If you ask the average taxpayer, I mean, even in rural Colorado, do you want your taxpayer dollars spent chasing piglets across the country? They're going to say, are you, are you out of your mind? I mean, no, of course not. And I would estimate the government probably spent millions of dollars on this. Because when you have that many agents, that many people involved, when you're crossing state lines, executing search warrants, all the attorneys involved and getting the approvals, I mean, this is probably a multi-million dollar project all the fine two piglets. And, and one of the cruel ironies about all this is none of that had to happen because they're trying to find evidence that we so-called committed a crime when I and others involved in this project who were more directly, you know, involved in this project, unlike you who just got a call from someone who said, there's two piglets, I need a home, can you take them? You said, sure, why not? I'd been completely open about all this. I mean, we had created a virtual reality piece that was on YouTube. It's like, you didn't need to harass these folks who are caring for the animals. You could have gone to YouTube, my friends, and figured it out yourself. And instead, you spent millions of dollars to harass and intimidate people who are just trying to care for animals. And there's something just disturbing about that, that misuse of resources, even setting aside the cruelty to animals, that I think most people who are not even animal advocates would say, there's something wrong about this. There's something about this system, about the influence of this industry that has gone haywire. Um, but what was your reaction when you, when you saw the piece and when it was published for the first time and you saw it going viral and like, there were all these big names. Like, it's interesting. I, um, the name of this podcast is the green pole podcast. It's, it's named after a concept that Ezra Klein coined. Um, the idea is you can take the, if you remember from the matrix, you can take the red pill or the blue pill. And right. Ezra Klein said, well, when you start looking seriously, at what's happened to animals in this earth, it's like taking the green pill because you take the pill and you start seeing the darkness out there and all the bad things, but also the opportunity to change things. So, but one of the reasons Ezra was on the podcast and I got to know him was because Ezra actually shared that article on Twitter. And he saw that, like, I think it was four or 5,000 people retweeted it. And he was like, oh, wow, there's, there's an audience for this. People are interested in this story. Um, but actually, I've never asked you this. Like, what was your response when you first saw that article? And this is like a 5,000 word article. It goes into extreme detail, not just into what happened 
that day. That day was the animating story. That was the, the narrative anchor for his story. But he goes into extreme detail into the nature of the industry, the political influence mm-hmm. they have, the campaign contributions they make, and maybe most importantly, the brutal, brutal abuse of animals that they were trying to cover up by intimidating animal rights activists like you and me. So you see this 5,000-word article. I mean, what's your reaction to it? Do you, are you happy? Do you feel like, okay, this is good? Or yeah. Are you scared? Because <laughs> I mean, you're out now. Like you. Yeah. The, the it, it was it was a twofold reaction. I, I felt that overall, the the animal agriculture uh, has now been more exposed. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the practices are now further in the open, and there was more positive that happened for animals as a whole. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand. I had concerns about for love and arms. Yeah. So the way we serve our mission is by helping to connect people in a very compassionate way with farmed animals. We are compassionate not only towards farmed animals, but also to the humans who yeah. come and visit here. Recognizing that everybody has their own culture, their history, their place that they come from. And they may or may not be vegan now, but you know, this opportunity to really connect with farmed animals and see how amazing they are, how intelligent, how social, how, you know, individual that they are, Mm -hmm. that it makes a difference. And the concern I had was we didn't want to serve our mission less because of this, because of this, this, um, you know, some people may paint it as Love and Arms is a place that is outside of the law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You were just telling me about this kind of almost moment of truth where you decide to speak to the journalist, the article comes out, it's incredibly good, and there's enormous awareness. I mean, I think on Facebook alone, this article was shared over 130,000 times. And that's shared, not viewed, shared by people on their Facebook page. And similar numbers on, on, on Twitter, and we got a massive response on email when we circulated, and we definitely got more replies to that email than every email, maybe even, you know, our next five top emails, just so many people responding and just shocked, you know, and horrified by what they saw. But there's potential cost. And it sounds like the thing that you're afraid of was people basically coming after you as a result of this. Is that, am I, is that the fear? No, the fear was people not fully understanding what happened and, and us not being able to fulfill our mission yep that makes sense like we want families here we want kids to be connected with farmed animals we want them to you know like hold on to the compassion that they naturally have and so we want our community to feel that this is a safe place for them to be yeah and and i think that's that's where the fear was yeah and saying that hey by the way there are a bunch of armed fbi agents who came and raided this place is probably not the thing that's going to make kids and families feel the most safe makes a lot of sense so i mean what were the conversations behind the scenes i'm sure you had conversations with your wife about this i mean so like how did you talk about this and what was it and what, what were there moments where you thought we made a terrible mistake or did you more or less feel good about it and say like okay there's some risk but this is the right direction for yeah. us. I don't think we had a conversation of this was a mistake. Okay. But the conversations definitely revolved around what's going to happen next and okay. what are the consequences and, you know, what 
can we do? What is this going to mean for the sanctuary, for mm -hmm. us personally? And, mm -hmm. you know, so that's where most of our conversations revolved. Yeah. Was yeah. your family pretty supportive? I mean, I guess your kids are young enough. They probably didn't talk to you too much about yeah. this, but so that's mainly your wife. I mean, was she okay with the direction you were going? Was she saying, Jalene, you've gone out of your mind. Please shut up. <laughs> I'd like to be able to feed my children. And she was supportive. She was supportive. She was supportive. Awesome. She understood. Yeah. I mean, she's yeah. an animal advocate too, for the record. For That's the, right. Yeah. So yeah. you really did this, start this sanctuary as a partnership. It's between That's the right. two. She's, it wasn't just you. Yeah. Obviously, it was she was actually the inspiration yeah of, that's of, right because yeah, she was the one who saw forward. the horses right you told yeah. me about this before yeah yeah actually tell me that story i mean tell me how did how did you start this place and how was your wife the inspiration for this so she um she went vegan when our first uh, son was born mm -hmm. um because he uh, could not digest dairy proteins through her breast milk because she was consuming dairy huh and so he wasn't thriving early on, first couple of weeks. And was this um, in the womb or after? No, he was no, born? Out, outside. Yeah, outside, when he okay. was born. Um, and so the pediatrician suggested an elimination diet, and the top of the list was dairy. So as soon as she eliminated dairy, within a couple of days, he was thriving. Interesting. And, and she was she was asking the questions of why our son. And why dairy? Isn't it yeah. supposed to be healthy? Isn't it supposed to be nutritious? Aren't we all supposed to be having dairy for calcium and protein and et yeah. cetera? So wait, can you explain that, just the medical status mm, for a bit? Yeah. So she's drinking cow's milk. Right. And that's affecting the milk the kid is yeah, getting from right. her in that's a negative right. way. Is that common? I didn't... I don't think I've heard of that before you. It might be it because might be. yeah, we were we were lucky to have a very holistic minded pediatrician. Okay. Um, I mean, we we realized that both of our sons actually uh, would be constipated if my wife had rice huh. or if she had wheat. Like there okay. was these uh, what the mother eats affects uh, the food. Yeah, affects yeah, okay. affects, uh, yeah which is I mean, it seems logical in some ways, but most doctors don't don't think about that. think about that yeah because um, it's just milk i mean right what does it matter what it is i mean you're still it's the same looks the same and right yeah well, but we I'm, were yeah. we were very lucky to have a holistic minded okay. uh pediatrician who prescribed an elimination diet and you know there was four or five common uh, you know food items that you eliminate one at a time and you try to figure out which what one is. is is causing a negative reaction okay um so but as she's exploring why milk and uh -huh. she learns about the dairy industry and can really connect because here she has a baby who is, mm. you know, who's, who she's nursing and she can relate to how cows now have to have babies mm -hmm. and they're stolen away and they're taken away. And that's the milk that we take um, as humans. And so she really connected to that. And mm -hmm. so she became vegan first. Mm -hmm. it took me two years. Mainly, I had to, you know, leaving cheese was the most the difficult, thing, yeah. right? Um, and that must have been really hard because, from what I understand about Indian culture, dairy is kind of a big deal, right? I mean, it's, it is. It's in yeah. everything, and it's, it's everything. Yeah, and in an increasing amount of capacity, you know, quantity. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, if you go out to a restaurant in India, like they'll put in tons of butter, tons of cheese, and pretty wow. much anything you order that did not used to have, but you know, uh, that dairy in it. Um, but so when she sells to you, I'm going to cut dairy out of my diet. Yeah. I mean, what's your reaction and what, what's like, your family's reaction? Is everyone's like supportive or are they saying that's ridiculous? I mean, this is she part was of our strong. culture. She's yeah, strong. she was very strong and, and made that decision because she knew it was in the best interest of, of our kid. son. Yeah. And, and like this was 
back in the time it was, it was not that long ago it was yeah. you know close to 10 years ago but you couldn't you know, we were in Jacksonville Florida you couldn't find uh, you couldn't <laughs> find dairy alternatives sure. uh, just anywhere like you had to drive you know 20 30 minutes to get to uh, Whole Foods or you know, you know some yeah. sort of a um, you know like natural a, a, a natural store. food store yeah. to be able to get anything mm-hmm. so um, and dairy was such a big part of of her diet like you know mm-hmm. milk and yogurt and you know all of that so um it took a bit of getting used to but mm-hmm. she she stuck to it yeah um yeah and you were supportive from day one or were you kind of reluctant or no you thought no, it was the no, right no, thing i think to do? it was, yeah, it was it definitely the, kid. the right thing yeah absolutely it was okay. yeah within 24 hours you could see the difference really it was, yeah it was that incredible quick. it was incredible it takes it takes nine months for dairy to completely leave your system like if you stop eating dairy it takes huh. months for your body to, you know, wash away the negative effects, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, in that moment, it was it was that that quick for for our son. Yeah, it's interesting because I I've never heard about this other than from you that a mother drinking milk can have these adverse consequences for the child who's nursing. But I will say, in Chinese culture, dairy is very uncommon historically, and you know there isn't even a word for cheese because we've never had cheese and we mm-hmm. don't drink cow's milk like we we just never have like. There are cows in China, but they've always used, been used to plow fields. Drinking the cow's milk, it just no one ever looked at a cow in China and said, "Oh, I'd like to take whatever's coming out of those <laughs> those nipples. Like, let's drink what's I'm gonna no. take the animal's milk." I mean, it's just kind of a weird thing for Chinese people to think about, and and maybe partly as a result. Although I'm, I think some of the research is suggesting it's not just Chinese people, but a lot of other ethnic groups like black yeah. people and even a lot of white people, and maybe even some Indian people. Partly because this is not a natural food for us, there's yeah. a massively higher level of lactose intolerance. That's right. In in the Chinese community, for example, I think it's higher than 95% of us by adulthood cannot process, process lactose. Yeah. You know, because milk is a baby's food, so it's it causes problems. And I will tell you, I'm not going to go into the gory details. If I have a little milk, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, there's a reasonable chance you might know, and I'm not going to explain <laughs> how or why, but you can imagine. Um. Yet in every school and in every hospital, like this is this classic food we give people, even though the evidence shows very clearly 95% of Chinese people, and even in San Francisco, like and in San Francisco, one third of the people are Chinese, you know, and the kids go to school, they're drinking stuff that 95% of them are probably going to have a bad reaction to. And, you know, if you've had bad digestive pain, was your kid suffering from digestive issues? Was that the yeah. problem with the dairy? Yeah, like, he, couldn't, he couldn't keep down he couldn't any keep food. Down like food. he was, yeah, he was yeah. throwing up and... Yeah, digestive issues are, it's like some of the worst stuff you could possibly experience. When you have stomach pain, because it doesn't end, and lying down doesn't help, nothing helps. Like taking Advil doesn't help, it just hurts. Like when you're bloated, it just hurts all the time. And imagine like 95% of the kids in a school in Chinatown, for example, in San Francisco, going to lunch, the only drink they have available is milk, because that's what's subsidized, up to the American government is telling you you have to drink. And the afternoon, and this happened to me, like when I was a kid in Indiana, I just thought, oh, I mean, I guess, I don't know what's going on, but I just, my afternoons suck. Like, whatever reason, I can't focus. And it's because you're bloated. You're sick. And if you're sick, it's hard to concentrate. So it's, it's so weird. I mean, obviously, the consequences for the animals, it sounds like your, your wife found out about are brutal and, and gruesome and, you know, like separating babies from their mothers, killing them, confining them in crates. But there's also some very serious consequences for human beings that really need to be examined more. But all of these things are things the industry really doesn't want you to know. <laughs> like they don't want you to know or talk about the fact that 90 plus percent of Chinese people are lactose and Tom because they know it's going to cut into their bottom line. Um, so your wife 
gives up dairy and starts thinking about animals. Still a pretty big jump from there to having a huge <laughs> sanctuary and devoting your entire life to rescuing. How many animals are there here? There's 113. 113. Yeah. Okay, that's a little more than I thought. Um, so walk me through that. I mean, how, how does that journey work? Because the other thing I want to say, you're not seeing Shalene and you know Shalene. I know Shalene and I'm seeing Shalene now. Shalene is, doesn't seem like a very hippie, you know, granola sort of guy. He's wearing like a polo shirt, got a background in the tech industry. <laughs> like, you don't sound like the sort of person who's going to say, let's throw everything away and move out to the countryside and help animals at a big farm. Uh, so what, tell me, walk me through that. How does this happen? How does how's your wife, because it sounds like your wife was the one who really drove this in many ways. And, and she will say that it was our kids who inspired us. Um, so our, our first son inspired us as a family to go vegan. Uh-huh. And then when our second son was born, that's when animals started to come into our lives mm. where um, I was really into horse riding when I was young in India. Interesting. And here, after our second son was born, we just happened to meet somebody and I started riding with him. And, and, uh, and then we decided that you know, we've never had any pets in our lives, and now's the time that we're going to adopt a pet, and it's going to be a horse. Oh. You know, it's just go big. Um, is, is, is horse riding common in India? I didn't know. I've never heard of that before. No, India. not and common. And I didn't know that, it's that just, you were a horse rider. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how did you end up horse riding in India? Oh, in India. It was just... Random? It, it, yeah, it was just a passion. Huh. Um, and, like, I would... And in, like there isn't trails, right? Like you're you're you you go riding in, in India. You're riding on the the road on the highway with cars and trucks and buses around you. Like I've I've had probably at least three to four near death experiences <laughs> horse riding in India. Um, but here we decide. Wait, that wait, wait, back up a little bit. So yeah. how do, if <laughs> if you don't have any trails and no one else is riding horses, how the heck did you end up riding horses in India? I mean. Yeah. No, well, there's, there's, there's people who, who still like, do it. yeah, like they have the horses and they'll either let you rent them to, uh-huh. to ride or, or, you know, like they'll take you on a ride. So, I mean, there's, there's ways, I mean, the people can ride horses there. Okay. Um, just but, in the middle of a city. Yeah. There's just a big in the middle city, of a city. Big city. Like, yeah. Chennai or where, where are you from again? Uh, Ahmedabad. Ahmedabad. Okay. Yeah. So you can just rent a horse and go. Go riding. Riding down the street with a bunch of cars <laughs> and motorcycles and kids in urban India. Yeah. Dang. So what inspired you to do it? Were you the only person in your family to do this? Were there other people who did yeah, this? Was, you were the, was the only, only person. One. You just only decided, one. Yeah. I, I, I want to do that. And yeah. you started doing it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and this is how old were you? Oh, this was, I moved here when I was 10. Okay. So yeah, it was before, before wow. then. So when you were and, a young kid. Yeah. And every time I would go back, we would ride horses. Yeah. yeah ride horses. Wow. And okay. I would make all of my cousins do it, whether they wanted to or not. <laughs> I think it was the universe planning a path yeah, because, you. Um, you know, after all those years, it had been many, many years that I had stopped writing. And then um, after our second son was born, we, mm-hmm. we, I started writing again and we ended up adopting Holly. Mm-hmm. And when Holly came into our life... Um, and Holly's a was, horse, it sounds Holly's like. Holly's a, a horse. Not a human child. That's right, okay. yes. Uh, Holly's a horse. A horse. Um, and when she came into our lives... It was the first time in my life when I saw a horse for who she is instead oh. of what I wanted from her. Yeah. And I could see just her individualism. I could see her personality. I could see um, her wants and desires. And and it made this, this tremendous shift. Oh. I stopped writing. And wow. I learned more about 
the challenges and the atrocities that that horses face. Yeah. And you know, we we had a small house and um, just just suburbia, right? Uh, yeah. No backyard really. Um, and so we were boarding Holly, and we said, okay, well, if we rescue a couple of others um, from this horrible life or whatever they're suffering from, and then we can board them. We don't mm-hmm. have to have our own land. So we rescued then Niblet, who mm-hmm. was just a baby when he was at a slaughter auction. So what and does that mean, rescue? And how did you rescue Holly? I mean, so Holly was because so, people don't. I think people have a conception of dog and cat rescue, but for most yeah. people, it's like. Where do you even find a horse, much less rescue a horse? What are you meaning? Are you did you see a horse out in the wild and grab them because they were being chased by a lion? A, yeah, there are no lions in the Holly United States, was but. Holly was actually um, so she was she was neglected in in some respects, right? But she was up for adoption. It okay. wasn't necessarily a direct rescue, because okay, but it was when, from a yeah. shelter. No, it was a private individual a who private had individual. herself rescued her okay. because you know, couple, they got divorced and the the wife got the horse and she didn't take care of Holly. Mm-hmm. Um, so then somebody else actually, you know, adopted her, or rescued her from them and, you know, got her healthy and then re- were adopting her out again. Mm-hmm. And because I was looking to adopt a horse to ride, mm-hmm. not, I wasn't thinking rescue at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but after Holly and we actually wanted, you know, after we learned about all sorts of abuses that happen to horses. We actually wanted to rescue. Mm-hmm. The The first individual that we rescued was Niblet. Mm-hmm. And, and he, as a baby, was being sent to slaughter because he was unwanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and Why wasn't he wanted? So there's many different reasons why it, you know, because we didn't actually rescue him from the person who didn't want him. They sent him to an auction. Somebody else rescued him from that. Um, and... The the many reasons can be, and, and most likely was, he was a baby of a nurse mare. Uh, mm. and, and the nurse mare is, like in the racehorse industry, um, like the mother of the racehorse, they're a special breed, like they're, you know, highly prized. And they are, you know, once they have a baby, they're immediately sent off to have another baby to get pregnant again. Mm-hmm. Um, so the baby has to be fed. And what the industry does is they have these other mares that are used to nurse mm. the more valuable racehorse baby. But those mares, they're their the babies, yeah. they, okay. their babies get discarded. Yeah, because they're no value. They're of no value. Yeah, they're so, not they don't have the right genes. They're not going to be great racehorses. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think people don't probably have much of a concept of the abuse of horses in this nation. But I was actually talking to Justin Marceau just uh, two days ago. Um, I mean, it was yesterday. Time's flying. And he was telling me about all the horses in, in these wild, you know, federal lands that are yeah. just being exterminated because oh, yeah. they're considered pests. And, you know, they're, they're not shot on the spot. But in many ways, what happens to them is even worse. They're corralled because people think they're a pest and, you know, they're grazing too much land. You, want, you have all these ranchers want to come in and right. use the pasture for their cows. And, and so they keep telling the government, get these horses out of here because you've got these wild horses. And they shove them into these transport trucks and then ship them off to Mexico or Canada or France to be slaughtered. And we don't eat horse meat here, but in other places they do. And so in a lot of places in the world, and even in the United States, you know, we're indirectly fueling the horse meat industry, even though horses are an animal that most people in the United States just think about, and including probably you as someone who rode them and saw them as something different than just a piece of meat, yeah. as an animal who's 
you know, even if you think of them as your servant, you don't typically eat your servants. You know, you, you ride your servants, you care for them, but you don't eat them. So, so you're, you're riding Holly and you adopt Niblet. What was it about the interactions of Holly and Niblet that made you realize these are individuals and, and led you to decide you, you know, no longer wanted to kind of just use them as yeah. an entertainment device? Oh, I think if anybody spent 30 minutes with Holly, they could see her individualism. Like she's just an incredible, you know, being that has this, you know, she has a strong will. She's just, um, you can, you would tell that she, she has her own desires. She doesn't want to be written. Was there a moment that you had with her that you said, said to yourself, okay, wait, wait, let me think about this a little bit. This horse is not just a, like a thing for me to ride, but yeah. this, this horse is an individual. The, or was it more gradual or was there some experience there was definitely, Yeah, I, I think all change happens gradually, whether huh. we realize it or not. Yeah. Um, but there's always those moments of inspiration that actually trigger it. Yeah, yeah. And for me, the moment of inspiration was, uh, there was this person who would actually teach how to ride uh, through Gung Fu. Huh. And so he's a Gung Fu master. Uh, and he would teach, you know, he did this exercise with me and Holly where I was sitting on top uh, on a saddle that was probably, you know, three, four inches above her actual back, right? The, huh. the way the saddle works. works. Yep. And the exercise was I cannot hold the rein, I cannot squeeze uh, to give any instructions to Holly, all I can do is breathe. Hmm. And so through the rhythm of my breath and for me directing my breath to the left or to the right, Hmm. she knew exactly what to do. And that, that moment- sounds mystical and- It is incredible. It sounds fake. (laughs) It sounds fake. And- Did it work? Yes. It actually worked. And that was the- That's amazing. That was a moment of inspiration is that Here's a being who is so in tune, who is so incredibly sensitive. Yeah. And what I am doing is subjugating her to my will. Your will, wow. And and that was the moment of where I said, okay, I'm I'm no longer going to ride. Yeah, an animal that is this attuned to what I'm feeling and even breathing to my heartbeat is is something more than just a ride. That's right. Crystal, do you think that's real? Uh, (laughs) Crystal's a horse race. (laughs) You You can ride a horse with your breath? I mean, and I'm a dressage person, yeah. and I, the cues that you develop this relationship with your horse, huh. the cues can be so, so subtle, um, it looks like you're not moving at all, and that's the kind of relationship that you develop with them, it's so, so subtle. And huh. Because when you said that to me, I was like, that kind of sounds fake. <laughs> sounds like, no, you know, like, I, I, I know a lot of people say things about Kung Fu that are like, Kung Fu is going to help you fly. Right? You know, like, I'm like, oh, I don't think Kung Fu will allow you to fly. I mean, it's, it's not that bad, but yeah. that's pretty amazing. And so, so t- tell me what happens next. Cause there's still a jump from, you know, two horses to a sanctuary. Yeah. Like, what so what the, is the point in your life that this isn't third, just about the individual animals, the third, the third horse. horse. Yeah. Okay. So I, I get a phone call from someone in, you know, in the, the horse world that, that we had known. They're like, Hey, you want to rescue horses? Here's, there's a slaughter auction in Fort Collins, and I was just there, and there's a mare who looks pregnant, and there's two babies with her, and they're going to slaughter. So I said, okay, and I grab some money and drive up there. It was an hour, hour and a half away from our house, 
and I see them and I decide, okay, I'm going to rescue them. Like uh-huh. I, I need to rescue them, uh-huh. but I had to wait and six hours. Horse is going to be slaughtered. Do you remember why? Yeah, I think she was too old or she was used as a, probably as in like a, um, a mare in a Premarin facility just, you know, mm. made to have multiple babies. The babies yeah, were yeah. discarded. She was used and abused. Um, and then the babies were probably of not of value because just yeah, their, yeah. their breed or yeah. wasn't right They're or something. Using They're just What is Premarin again? I've heard that before. Yeah, what is Premarin it used for? Is it's a, some sort of uh, hormone that they use for some medical yeah, thing? Yeah, it's uh, for, for menopause. For, for women, menopause, uh, right. they use it for menopause. And the, the word Premarin, it comes from pregnant mare urine. Wow. Uh, and that's how they derive the, the actual medicine. Is oh, they, that's so creepy. Yeah. They, so they impregnate they, horses, kill their babies, take their urine, and, and make feed it, it into to women who are having menopause. That's right. <laughs> um, Weird world we live in, my friend. Yeah. Weird world. So she was like a Premarin horse that was just most likely spent and yeah. just no, no value. No, no value. And yeah. so no, I'm I, here. It's funny. I didn't even realize until you just told me this that horses are regularly sold at slaughter auctions. Yeah. But, but it's just you don't think of horses as slaughtered animals, but right because well, I guess when, when when horses get sick and they get old, most people who own horses in the yeah. U.S. like they don't want to spend the money to take they care of care them because yeah. it they they become unrideable fairly early on mm-hmm. in their life, and then they have another oh, five, six, eight, ten years of their life left where they can't be ridden, yeah. or and so yeah, there there is. You know, there's a give and take relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you take the two horses you rescue from this auction? Three. Three. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it was a mare and, and two babies. But when and I the was babies there, babies had already been born. These are not. No. Yeah. So they, they, they were born. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they weren't hers, but she was really protective Attached of them. them. She was mm-hmm. yeah, caring for them. Um, so she was nursing these two? No. They were they were older. They're older. Yeah. They're older enough. But they're just attached to right. to to. Yeah. The but I, horse. I had to wait six hours for them to come to auction. Okay. And in those six hours, uh, I'm there, and there's hundreds of other farmed animals yeah. that are being pushed, pulled, kicked, prodded onto the auction floor, being sold by the pound. Yeah, they're, they're terrible places. These, um, these auctions, I've seen them, and they're, yeah. they're not fun. And anyone who has any compassion is not going to be happy there. It was a very emotional time, and all I could think of was I want to save the others. Yeah. Um, there were, I mean, all sorts of farmed animals, babies, you know, and, and wanted to save more, and, but we didn't have land. All yeah. we could do was board the horses, horses yeah. and we couldn't board farmed animals there. Yeah. Um, was that your first time ever in kind of an animal agricultural facility? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it was. And so here I am just wishing to save more of these lives and thinking, well, if we had land... Um, we could have saved some more. We finally rescue the horses, and on our way back, I'm still, I can't get rid of the image of all of the others who I left behind. Yeah. And I'm just praying, if only I had land, if yeah. only we had land. Literally that evening, I get a phone call. Uh, there's 23 acres two miles from your house. Do you know anybody who could use it? Wow. Wait, wait, why would someone call you about that? It was, that? it was somebody I knew, somebody knew who had happened to go by to this property and had told the, the owner, well, let me ask around. Let me see yeah. if I can help you get a lease. And they called me. Yeah. And it just. It seemed like fate. It seemed like fate. Yeah. It can seemed I, like Can I ask you a question? I mean, 
I uh, walked into a slaughterhouse for the first time in 2007 um, when I was a failing law professor. I think I was still a law professor at the time, and but I wasn't doing well. I, was, I had no future, and I was like, all right, you know, if I've got no future, I'll just do something crazy. And um, if any of you have been to a slaughter auction, there are not too many Indian people <laughs> at, at slaughter auctions. And, and you've got two kids. You've got... At this point, were you already an entrepreneur, or oh yeah, okay, so you already started yeah. your own business. And for those of you who don't yeah. know, starting your own business is a beast in and of itself. It's it's all consuming, and it's you know because you got to do everything. You know, you you can't just do one aspect of the work. You got to do finance. You got to do HR. You got to do recruiting. You got to do operations. Everything. So what? I mean, a lot of people love horses, and a lot of people love dogs and cats. Um, you know, we're talking earlier about how in our cultural traditions, Buddhism and Hinduism and, and Jainism, especially, which I want to ask you about before we close. And, you know, we, we believe all animals are equal. That, in fact, a lot of people in, in Buddhist and Hindu thought even think the animals are, are part of our family. They're, you know, that we can be reincarnated as an animal and the animals could be our family members and ancestors because the web of life is all equal. Very few people suddenly decide when you've got two kids in a business, I'm just going to go out to a slaughterhouse or a slaughter auction spend six hours, spend all this money and, and get some horses that I probably don't have enough time or resources to manage unless I make some huge changes in my life. So what was it about you specifically? I mean, for me, it was about failure. Like I had fucked up massively and I had nothing to lose. So I was like, yeah, why not? I'm going to go into a slaughterhouse and try and rescue a lamb. And I failed and I didn't get the lamb out, but I decided I'm just going to do this. But So I'm trying to understand, like, what was it that drove you to do this and do something that was completely off the wall. Yeah. For an um, Indian tech person, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't see any many Indian tech people at slaughterhouse auctions. I've been to a lot of them and I've yeah. been to a lot of factory farms and never seen an Indian person at all, frankly. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. You don't know? No, huh. I, I, I feel it was just the right thing to do Deal. at that moment. Huh. And, did you have a history in, in, of activism before this? No. Were you the sort of person who was doing weird things? I guess you were an entrepreneur, but that's not that weird. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people are entrepreneurs. I was an entrepreneur since I was in 11th grade yeah. when I was 15. Yeah, yeah. So that part was weird. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, but no. It, were you someone who was used to doing things that were a little deviant? I mean. No. No? <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, don't, I don't get you, Shaleen. I really don't. Like it's, I mean, it's great and it's amazing, but I'm in trying to understand how you made that decision and, and even how you made the decision later on that I'm going to go speak to Glenn Greenwald, even though my family could be destroyed by this. I don't quite get it. And have you reflected on that? I mean, do you understand? Like, and what, how do you explain that other people don't do these things? Honestly, maybe the right question isn't how did you do what you did or why did you do what you did? But why don't more people who have this background and who do care about horses, because there are a lot of people who love horses. There are a lot of people who love dogs and cats and even other animals. A lot of Buddhists and Hindus who are vegetarian and have this philosophy that you know, we shouldn't hurt animals. But very few of us actually go to that length of going to a slaughter auction to go rescue a mare and her two foals. You know? So yeah. I mean, what's your explanation? I think we, and it wasn't just me, right? It was Shilpi was yeah. right there encouraging it and supporting it. Hmm. Um, and I think that we just felt that this was the least that we could do. Wow. Because, um, you know, understanding Holly and who she was as an individual, yeah. and then which led us to exploring more of how horses are abused. Yeah. 
it felt that this is the least that we can do. Right. Yeah. So it's like a dog lover who who rescues a few few dogs because yeah. you know they that's the least that they can do and they yeah. they want to help a, a few dogs that they can. Right. This wasn't and and this was within our capacity. Yeah. Right. That okay. We can pay a few hundred dollars a month sure. to board and feed horses at a boarding facility to, yeah. to give them. Because your businesses are doing well and yeah. you're making enough we, we money. Had a, you can yeah, afford. we had a little yeah. bit of money that we could we could do yeah. this much. Okay. Could we have rescued more than that? Probably not in the yeah. way that we were we were doing that, right? It, but but this was the least we can do. Huh. And it just happened that I was here at this slaughter auction. And I saw hundreds of other individuals that really needed to be saved. Yeah. And 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 we put the prayer out into the universe that yeah. if we had land, we would have rescued others. Wow. And the universe answered immediately. Immediately within one day. Wow. And that's powerful. And that was. And, and I mean, that was a conversation, right? Yeah. Like you know, between Shilpi and I, we had we spent a whole night talking about what do we do with this like if the universe is asking us to do this like if we're called to do this how do we do this because our we had two little ones my youngest one was barely a year old Mm -hmm. stolen Mm -hmm. diapers you know um my business was was okay but still needed all of my time Mm -hmm. uh, and our kids needed our time so how do we do this two individuals who don't know how to care for animals have never cared for animals um and who don't know how to fix or build or anything. Like I could barely swing a hammer at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like we're um, not not built for this, not not made for this is, is the conversation that we had. Like, what do we do? Yeah. And ultimately we just felt that we couldn't, we can't ignore this. Um, and if we don't do this, what are we doing in this world? Mm-hmm. Like how are we making an impact that changes the world for our kids. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately the inspiration again was our kids. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we want to show them the values that we believe in, in action. We want them to connect to them and we want to do what we can to leave them a better world. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about those values because yeah, you and, and your wife, I think are both Jane, right? And yes. And it's a beautiful philosophy and religion that I, I have always just admired so much. I want to hear more about that. But before I ask you that question, what did your family say, like your broader family? It sounds like, and I think this is true, but a lot of people make tough decisions like this that Shilpi, 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 Shilpi mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry for mispronouncing that, sorry Shilpi, uh, was really important, that having one person support you. And that was true of me too. You know, if I didn't have, I, I didn't have many friends when I was growing up, didn't have any really you know, much social interaction at all in college and grad school and law school. But for the first time in my life, when I was a professor at Northwestern, I didn't have that many relationships with my fellow faculty members, but I met some activists who really supported me and cared about me. And, and I knew like if push came to shove, and even if I was arrested for trying to rescue a lamb, they'd have my back. Like they'd, they'd be there for me and they supported the work. And I think that's often true of people who take risky decisions of this sort, that there's someone behind the scenes too, who's saying, yeah, go out to that slaughter auction. You know, because there's so many reasons not to do it, right? And even one person saying, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? Can really make you think, oh, wait, maybe I'm making some disastrous wrong turn with my life. But having someone, especially you're close to, say, no, you're doing the right thing. And this is a sacrifice and it's going to be tough, but we need to do this because it's the right thing. But 
Um, what did your broader extended family think? Because I just think about Indian and Chinese families and how they're so focused on, like, <laughs> you know, make sure your career is in good order. Yeah. Financial security is really important. Don't do anything too risky. Don't, you know, don't do anything too crazy because, you know, there's, there's like this path that we're supposed to take, you know, yeah. and this is not that path. So how does your family respond? Are they... They were puzzled and before. They were definitely puzzled. Yeah. And, and there was initial few years where for about four years of the sanctuary, it was Shilpi and I 80 hours a week. Wow. Our boys are here in all weather. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like we didn't have any other support system here. Our family wasn't here. So, um, you know, and, and when our families did visit, they were essentially babysitters while we're away. Uh-huh for hours and hours taking care of and building a sanctuary. Yeah. So there certainly was moments where they were saying, what are you doing? Like, You've yeah. got two little ones here that need you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but, but they supported us. They, they really yeah. supported us. They That's were awesome. there. Um, and, and, you know, they gave what they could and they, yeah. you know, they, they helped in any way that they can. So even the people who said, what are you doing? They, they still, they still stepped us. up and helped out. That's right. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that probably has something to do with the fact that your family is Jain. So can you just tell me what Jainism is and and what the value system is behind that? So Jain, it's broadly recognized as a religion, mm -hmm. but I think of it as a way of life. Hmm. It's it's built around value systems that you are constantly thinking about in your life of how to implement and how to grow into being a better, kinder, gentler person on this earth. Um, and, and Jainism is all based around certain tenets. And like, before we get into like what those values are, what's easier to understand is what Jains believe in. Mm -hmm. So Jains believe that all life is sacred and the life that we have, like, like our soul, it doesn't die, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's reincarnation, and you're you're born again and again, um, and you accumulate and you pay off karma uh, until you get to a point where you've paid all of your karma, mm -hmm. and and you can actually attain moksha, uh, which is salvation, or you become one with the universe. Your soul isn't born again. Mm -hmm. But to do this the path that you have to follow and continue to do in all of your lives. And, and you're, not, you're not just born as a human. You're, you're, sometimes you're born as an insect or mm -hmm. it, you know, like it, uh, the cycle of birth is varied. Um, yeah, the, the, the famous metaphor I've heard of, of Jane's is you know, they wear a, a mask on their face because they don't want to breathe in any insects. And they have a it's usually the monks. It's the it's monks. monks yeah. So there actually That's are right. people who do this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's not the monks. just a metaphor. It's, no. It's, it's actually real. It's real. Yeah. So they sweep the floor in front of them gently right. to ensure any insects or, or little creatures are not stepped on. That's right. They, they don't wear shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's beautiful. Um, it's, it's, I'm thinking about but this right now because I have all these mosquitoes. <laughs> you know, you're tempted to hit them. And I'm like, I'm sitting with someone who's Jane. I'm definitely not going to hit any mosquitoes today. You know, because it would yeah. be such a violation of the tenants of the table that I'm at, you know? It's only but, because the, the female mosquitoes want to recreate babies yeah, that they yeah. need our human blood. Or yeah, any, any blood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so to, to, to escape the cycle of rebirth, you... And the moments when you get to be a human, um, you're, 
you're you're called to do good 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 things, and and the way you do that is uh, the core tenets. You know, the main one being ahimsa. It is nonviolence, and and it's nonviolence all all beings. But you know, in the Western culture, when we think about violence, we think of like physical mm-hmm. violence. Um, whereas in Eastern philosophy, violence is not just physical, but it's also mental, emotional, verbal, mm-hmm. um, action-oriented or inaction-oriented. There's so many different ways that violence manifests in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Um, and so the, the meditation is to continually be aware of where you're causing harm and to continue to reduce it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so ahimsa is one, and... Another is, you know, karuna is just one of those values as well, where it's compassion for all life, for, mm-hmm. for all beings. Um, you know, there's there's a few others, but it's it's these values that drive your life, the day-to-day decisions, how you, um, what you eat, what you don't eat, what, how you talk or uh, think and, mm-hmm. and, and act in community. So James um, are all vegetarian, correct? Yeah. And, and that's required? It's, you know, because, again, it's not a religion in, in the sense of, it, it, and actually any set of beliefs, you know, people can create into, um, into structure and into, um, you know, kind of uh, ritualistic, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, but Jainism does have a core of being more of a spiritual way of life mm-hmm. and and it is you know your your path in life is to learn and understand and continue to do better mm-hmm. as a human being um so yes by tradition Jains are vegetarian but if someone actually took the time to learn and and continue to get better at what they do um, they would also be vegan. Hmm. And and many Jains are now yeah, starting to become much more aware of the harm in dairy and are starting to be vegan. Hmm. Um, so, it, yeah, it's there's a spectrum, as yeah. always, right? So how did this value system, when, I mean, we were just talking about how some of your family members were befuddled as to what you're doing, but they nonetheless supported it. Do you think that was a big part of why? Absolutely. Ultimately, yeah. Yeah, because I have to say, my... You know, my family did not support me. My <laughs> they they said, "What are you doing?" And they also didn't really support me initially. I, yeah. I have to say, my parents and my family are just incredibly generous people. They're really kind people. They've supported me in all these ridiculous things I did. But in the early stages, you know, like I, I remember my grandma when I went vegetarian, she would constantly try and like sneak beef broth into my food because she was afraid that <laughs> I'd die. Um, you know, my dad thought I was throwing my life away. He still just started to say things I'm throwing my life away. But um, that's partly because China's a weird place where there are these values. And, and Buddhism, when it's done right, I think has similar values to Jainism. But it, it's so long removed and it's, there's so much dislocation because we had this period of civil war and the cultural revolution where all these old traditions were lost. And I feel like one of the things that's been lost among young people and immigrants, especially from Asia, is not everything that was traditional was wrong. <laughs> There are a lot of, there's a lot of wisdom from the ancient philosophies that yeah. animated Asia that we should not be discarding, you know, and, and too much of that is being discarded right now. I don't know if you feel that way, but it, tell me how your family ultimately evolved. Cause from what I understand now is they all kind of think this is amazing, right? <laughs> is that right? I mean, yeah. Okay. No, there, there are. And, and, yeah. and they 
heavily support the sanctuary and, awesome. and they, they love the work that we do and um, and and you know love to be a part of it. Um, but it, you know, it, it, there's a tradition in Jainism which is called Jivdaya, which is the the gift of life. Like huh. you, you know, it's it's a one way of actively participating participating in ahimsa. Um, that if you see if you have an opportunity to save a life, mm. that you 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 do that. Um, so many Jains uh, have rescues in India, huh. um, and uh, you know they they rescue cows and and goats from from slaughter in India. Um, and so so there is kind of that that, that interwoven history, history yeah. of of doing that work. Um, in our family, we didn't have that from actual do, you know the actual doing of that work but we we have participating in in rescuing lives in India uh-huh. um, so so it wasn't that far removed that that we yeah. started a sanctuary here um, so our family could relate and, and yeah. could support that where do the animals go when in India Jane's you know, purchase these animals. Do they go to sanctuaries? Are there yeah. sanctuaries? In, okay, so there's, yeah, there's in India where they huge, take the goats and the cows. Huge sanctuary. The, the biggest cow sanctuary in India has over, like, I think close to 10,000 cows. Wow. It's, yeah. But, Is that a Jain sanctuary? Um, yes. Okay. Yeah, there, there's there's many. I mean, it, it's, it's very common for a, a Jain sanctuary to have yeah. over 3,000 animals wow. uh, in India. But, but there are... It's it's a very different perspective than what we've implemented here at Love and Arms, right? The perspective there is you rescue life and you give them food and water, and uh-huh. then they also have karma. Uh-huh. That sometimes when they fall, you know, their 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 suffering is also part of releasing of karma. Huh. Um, you know, they do provide medical care, yeah. um, but it's just it's it's a very different perspective okay. than 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 what we've tried to do here. How does Jainism? Is it practiced through temples, and how did you, like, how, just how does it transmitted to the next generation, and and how are you yeah. tra- are you transmitting it to your kids? Is are your kids being raised Jane? So from from very young point, uh, young age, like I I was never connected to um, ritualism of mm-hmm. Jainism, you know, because the, the ritualistic part of the religion, I, I much more connected to the intrinsic values and the spiritualism of, of Jainism. And, and, and in fact, Jains, there's a sect of Jains that actually only focus on the philosophy huh. and the values. And they don't actually have temples. They have um, a, like a community hall that you go to and you listen to uh, the nuns or, you know, you know uh, you know the the monks actually give a talk about how to be a better person like that that community yeah. learning of being a better person was the religion is huh. the implementation of it and and um but then there is another sect of this religion that actually has temples and they have yeah. deities that they um you know that they uh, pray to and there's ritualism mm-hmm. of of acting out the religion through through doing those actions hmm. um so I was always kind of gravitated towards more of the, the philosophical the spiritualism time, yeah. and you know values-driven uh, part of the religion, and that's that's what we also are, are trying to teach the kids without potentially attaching it to the religion. It's okay. just this is how you live life. Yeah, it's like, like you said, a way of life, and, yeah. and not just a formalistic religion. Right. Yeah. No, that's beautiful, and 
love to see the entire world adopt some of these values more. Whatever you call it, whether you call it Jainism, Buddhism, frankly, call it Christianity, call it whatever you want. But at the end of the day, at the root, it's just about compassion. Yeah. It's about living your life in a way that cares for others instead of hurting them. And so much of what our society does, sometimes totally without even conscious thought, is, is harm and suffering. So what's next? We're getting eaten by mosquitoes out here and it's getting pretty dark <laughs> and then you gotta go back to your kids. So say a few words about what's next for Love and Arms and what you're passionate about and, and what you'd like to see the world do and what part you see Love and Arms and yourself playing in that. Yeah. Um, so I, I, Love and Arms is just an incredible place today and it's going to get even even better and better yeah. because we have an incredible team here and the vision, the grand vision is to create a place of inspiration. Mm. Um, a place where someone, as they come, can be inspired to think about farmed animals in a very different way because yeah. they get to see and interact with farmed animals in a way that they don't get to anywhere else. Like our, our long-term vision is that we don't, you know, this should be a place that's a home for the animals that should feel like a village, mm -hmm. not like a farm, mm. right? Um, it should I feel like uh, like a a park, mm -hmm. uh, a beautiful place to be mm -hmm. for for all of us. And mm -hmm. in that space, you'd really kind of open up and, and see the animals for who they are and and really connect with them uh, in a very different way than than you would anywhere else. Yeah. And and you know that physical manifestation of the world that we want to see created. Um, yeah. That's you know that's what Love in Arms is. I love that idea that this is a village. This is a community. This is not a sanctuary. It's not a farm. Right. It's it's just different groups of individuals who are living with each other in harmony. That's that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. And I can see how you're trying to do that. Even with those beautiful ponds I saw today for the ducks. You know, they look so peaceful. And I saw these ducks that probably never been in a pond before in their lives. You know, I saw Benjamin today waddle into the water and splash around. And he's got a legit pond now to play in. And, and that's, that's the way every animal, human or non-human, should live. Yeah. Live in an environment that allows them to flourish. So my last question before we close is, is the question I ask everybody, is, which is, what do you think you've learned about change? You know, you've gone through some massive changes. You've taken on some challenges and taken some risks that I think a lot of people, including your own family members, are stunned by. And so you've changed on a personal level and you've created I mean, just the physical landscape around us. This this land has changed. We're surrounded by ranchers where animals are being exploited and killed everywhere around us. And then you've got this place where you're trying to create a community of compassion. So in, in the last 10 years, since you started on this journey, I'm sure you've learned a lot. What are some of the lessons that you think are most important for people to take themselves and so they can change and they can be part of a change they'd like to see in the world? Yeah. Um I think the biggest lesson that I've learned in this in this entire journey is the value of of compassion. Because um, a lot of times when people, you know, when they realize that they're doing something that's harmful to others, you know, they they start with kind of blaming themselves. They start with guilt. They start with um, you know the kind of the negative. Of how I sh like I, I spent all these years consuming dairy and I was hurting so many cows, yeah. you know. Um, but if you start with compassion, you start mm -hmm. with where you are, where you came from, and be compassionate towards yourself. Forgive yeah. yourself, and then the others around you, the world that you're trying to change or create an effect to, start with compassion. Mm 
-hmm. understand that others have their own journey that they came from and came through that led to the choices that they make. And, you know, just, just as your, yourself did. And, and so change happens when you start with compassion. Yeah. Powerful words. And there's so much truth to that. So I hope we all take that lesson on. Well, thank you so much, Lean. Thank you, Wayne. An hour and a half, two hours talking. It was, it was such a pleasure. And, and I hope people go visit the Love and Arms website, send them a donation. I'm inspired by this conversation. I'm going to make a donation myself tonight to Love and Arms. I hope you do the same. And, and Shalene, I'm sure we'll talk again. There are a lot of things on my list of things, uh, of subjects to talk about we didn't actually address, but it's almost pitch black dark. We're getting eaten by mosquitoes. <laughs> and as much as we want to gift the mother mosquitoes with our blood, there's limits to our compassion. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Well, kind of. I mean, I don't think we're going to give all our blood away. Are we? No. Do, do, are we required to do that by Jane? No. No, we don't have to give all no. our blood away. Okay, we don't have to give <laughs> our blood. We heard it from someone who's Jane. Even the Janes do not believe we have to give all our blood to the mosquitoes, so we're good to go home. No, but seriously. <laughs> Thanks, Shalene. It was, it was a real pleasure. And let's talk again sometime soon, okay? Love to, Wayne. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you all enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. Shalene has taken some risks and has taken some risks to tell the story. And it's a story that's never been told before. So if you thought that story was inspiring, interesting, educational, or disturbing, please share it with a friend. There's some very powerful corporations and institutions that don't want these stories told. And people like Shalene have put themselves on the line to tell these stories. So the best way to make sure we support them is by spreading these stories as far as we can. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend. But as always, I want to thank my friend and co-producer, Ronnie Rose, producer Hani for editing this podcast. Shalola Fakas does a lot of the social media. Julie Waldrop and Crystal Heath help out behind the scenes. It's a real team effort. And then, of course, there's all of you. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.